Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we will continue our consideration of Matthew's Gospel, which is the opening of the New Testament, and we will be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, which talk about John the Baptist and his ministry. So let's read the Word of God together. Matthew chapter 1, I mean Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let us pray. God and Father, thank you for the blessing of your word to us, for all generations, for our comfort, for our peace, strength, and encouragement. Lord God, speak your word to us, not in word, but by your spirit this morning, that it would have its full effect upon us, that we would be strengthened and encouraged and fully made your people, that we would be to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Old Testament prophecies, one of the themes that you find throughout them is that they speak of the coming of the Messiah and of the new covenant as a new exodus and a new entrance into the promised land. And this goes all the way back to Moses before the people entered the land in the first place. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and into Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses tells the people that they are not ultimately as a whole, going to be faithful. And that when they turn in their hearts away from the Lord their God, that ultimately he is going to judge them by sending them off into captivity and off into exile. He says, I'm going to scatter you among the peoples across the face of the earth. And we know, of course, that happened when the northern kingdom of Israel, when the Assyrians 
uh, took them into captivity, and then it happened uh, with the southern kingdom of Judea when the Babylonians took them into captivity. But Moses describes this in a very interesting way. He says, God's going to send you back to Egypt. And yet, we can see that Egypt here is not geographical Egypt, because he's talking about being scattered among all the peoples, and he refers to being, going back to Egypt in ships. Well, Israel didn't come from Egypt in a ship, and you don't get back to Egypt in a ship. But the point is, is that there's going to be a new Egypt, and it's not a geographical Egypt. Egypt means captivity uh, as a result of sins. But then Moses tells the people, he says, it shall be in all the lands where you're scattered, when you return, not if, but when you return to the Lord your God in your hearts, that he will gather you from all among the people and that he will bring you back into the land. And of course, Moses promises that God is going to raise up for the people a prophet like him, a prophet like Moses. And Moses had some ways in which he was different from all the other prophets who came in the Old Testament. One of them was, as God himself says, he said, I don't speak to Moses in visions and dreams and so forth. I speak to him face to face. And so there's going to be this prophet that's going to come like Moses. And God speaks to face to face. And Moses says, it shall be that whoever will not hear him will be utterly cut off from among the people. So there's this whole idea of this great prophet coming like Moses, and he's going to gather the people, and he's going to bring them from the wilderness of captivity and sin into the people, I mean, into the land. Now, um, the, 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 the Israelites expected this. That's how they thought. And Matthew has already pointed out to us that God has shown through the early events of Jesus' life that it is Israel herself that has become Egypt. You know, after the Babylonian captivity, the people were brought back into the land, but they really continued into captivity. Uh, they know that they're into captivity, and uh, increasingly it becomes evident that Egypt is here. Egypt is us. We are Egypt. Or as Pogo said, we have seen the enemy and he is us. And so if Israel is Egypt, then if Israel wants to become Israel, Israel has to go back out into the wilderness. She has to go back out into the desert and come back into the land with a new heart. And that's something else that Moses tells the people. He says, when you turn to the Lord your God among all the nations where you're scattered, when you turn to the Lord your God and he brings you back into the land, he's going to circumcise your hearts. He's going to create a difference in your heart. That's the same themes we see in Jeremiah 31, the great passage that promises the uh, new covenant. He says, I will make a new covenant with my people. It's not going to be like the old covenant when I brought the people out of Egypt because they didn't continue in my covenant. He says, this time I'm going to write my, heart, my laws on their hearts. Not going to be on tablets of stone outside of them, but written on their hearts inside them. And I will make a new covenant with them. So there's this expectation uh, that's very powerful in uh, Israel at the time of Christ and John the Baptist of a need for a new exodus, a need to come into the land again with a new heart. 
And that's what John is acting out by going out to the Jordan and baptizing. He's not simply looking for water. He can find water other places. This is symbolic speech. It's theatrical speech, as it were. When he goes out to the Jordan, and all the Jews know this, if he goes out to the Jordan, which is the river they crossed when they came into the land, it's like a baptism, and he's baptizing them in this water of the Jordan that the people came through on dry ground to start with. Everybody in Israel knows that something is afoot. Everybody knows that he's claiming that the new uh, exodus, the new entrance into the land, the new circumcision of heart, the Messiah, the new covenant, all of those things are about to happen. That's what he's saying. This would not have been lost on anybody. So by going out to the wilderness beyond the Jordan, baptizing there, he's declaring to all that the new exodus has come, the time of the new covenant has come, the time of the Messiah and of the kingdom of heaven is here. So these geographical details are significant. Whenever you see things like this about geography and other details in the scripture, they're never just thrown in there gratis. They always have a purpose. And we see the same thing about John's clothing and his dietary details. Matthew's not just mentioning these. He, this is part and parcel of John's message. Camel hair was not normal clothing for an Israelite. Locusts and wild honey were not a normal diet. So John is saying something through these things, and the fact that he was saying something through them would have been clear to all. The question is, what is he saying? Well, locusts and wild honey, camel's hair, these are food and clothing of the desert. These are food and clothing of the wilderness. They're not the food and clothing of people who are living in the land, off the fat of the land, the, the land of milk and honey, under their own vine and fig tree, with vineyards they haven't planted. It's not that kind of uh, lavish food. It's food of the desert, food of the wilderness. And so this is consistent with the theme of going back out into the wilderness in order to come into the land with a new heart and really become Israel. But it seems that something additional is going on with the, uh, with the camel here. Because the camel was an unclean animal under the Mosaic Code. Now, that doesn't mean it was unlawful to touch one or to ride on one. It wasn't. Uh, but this is just very, very unusual to, for John the Baptist to clothe himself in camel hair. It's never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, somebody being clothed in camel hair. So what is going on with this camel motif? Well, if you do a survey of all the Bible verses that refer to camels, there's one thing that jumps out at you, and what it is, is Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24 mentions camels 17 times, which is far more, not only than any chapter of the Bible, it's far more than any book of the Bible. The rest of Genesis, which is 50 chapters long, mentions camels only seven times. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy mention camels once a piece. Uh, Isaiah, which is the book that mentions camels most next to the book of Genesis, mentions them only four times. 
So almost a third of the references to camels in the entire 39-book corpus of the Old Testament come in this chapter, uh, Genesis 24. And it's very interesting what is going on in Genesis 24. What is going on there is that the servant of Abraham is finding a bride for Isaac, the son of promise, whom God calls Abraham's only begotten son. That's what's going on in Genesis 24. This servant's name is Eliezer. He's a trusted servant. Abraham has put him over everything he owns. He doesn't have to worry about a thing. Eliezer runs everything. The other interesting thing about Eliezer is that up until the time that God miraculously gives Isaac um, to uh, Abraham and Sarah, Eliezer is Abraham's heir. He's what's called a a home-born servant. He's not the lineal descendant of Abraham. He's not Abraham's son, but Abraham has no children, has no sons. He has Ishmael before Isaac, but God makes it clear that Ishmael is not the heir. It's the son of promise who's the heir. It's the miraculous son who is is the heir. Up until that time, Eliezer stands to inherit. He's like a son. He's the closest thing to a son that Abraham has. But here, Abraham, when Isaac is is time for him to be married, he takes Eliezer. He says, you swear to me, you know, you're going to take a bride for my son from the people of Canaan, who are going to be dispossessed. But you're going to go back across the desert. You're going to go back to where I came from originally and seek a bride for my son there. And then the references to camels is just amazing. It's a, it's a great chapter. I encourage you to read it this week as part of your family uh, devotions. It says that Eliezer, he loads up the camels. So he goes across the desert and he comes to uh, the city uh, where Abraham originally came from in Mesopotamia. And, and then as Eliezer prays, he's a man of great faith. He prays for God to bless and to bless his master, Abraham. This is a guy who you never see him thinking about himself. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about Abraham. He's thinking about Isaac. He's never thinking about himself. So he, he prays and he stays out by the well of the city and he prays for God. He says, God, let it be that when all the young ladies come out to draw water, that when I ask to have water drawn for me, if I can have a drink, that not only will this maiden draw water for me, but that she will spontaneously offer to draw water for my camels. And camels drink lots of water. So it turns out that here comes Rebecca out of these different maidens, and he asks her for water. And she immediately says, yes, I'll draw water for you. And not only that, but I'll draw water for your camels. And so she draws water for Eliezer. She draws water for his camels. And then he begins to talk to Rebecca. She brings him home uh, to uh, her parents' house um, and to her brother Laban. And there the whole story is related again about drawing water for the camels and so forth. And then so the story goes. And now now Eliezer is speaking to this would-be bride to Give her the opportunity and to convince her to become a bride of a man that she's never met. And 
she agrees to do this, and then it talks about that they load up on the camels, and they go back across the desert, and then it says that in the evening, Isaac was going out, uh, out from the camp to meditate, and blow, he sees camels coming across the desert. And then Rachel and Eliezer see a man out walking in the desert, and she wants to know who it is, and he says, it is my master, and so she puts the veil on her face, and then it says she gets off of her camel. So the, I urge you to read the chapter. The reference to camels are just throughout the whole thing. And I, and I don't think this is just some incidental connection. I really do think that there's something going on here because I think John the Baptist is the New Testament Eliezer. He is the servant whom God has sent to prepare a bride for the only begotten son. In fact, we're told specifically in Malachi that he's the one sent to prepare a people ready for the Lord. He is the trusted servant. And just as Eliezer acted always not in his own personal interest, but it was always pointing elsewhere, acting in somebody else's interest, even though up to a period of time he had an opportunity to inherit it would have been very natural for him, based on human nature, to feel a rivalry toward Isaac, to feel envy, to feel malice, to feel like Isaac is the little twerp who stole my inheritance. A little squirt. What's he done? I've served Abraham all this time. I run everything. I run everything. Everybody answers to me. And he's going to inherit? Not one hint of any problem from Eliezer there. And we see the same kind of spirit in John the Baptist. He is sent out into the desert to prepare a bride for God's only begotten son, the son of promise. Now, John had a lot of people coming out there. It says all of Judea and the whole region and all of Jerusalem, people are flocking out there in the desert to hear this man dressed in camel's hair. And let me tell you, that does something to the human ego, to have those kind of crowds thronging, have people hanging on your every word. That does something to the ego. And John had the opportunity. A lot of people are going to think because of John's powerful uh, preaching, he's a man whom we're told in the other Gospels that God promised to be filled with the Spirit from his conception onward. He, we're told by Jesus himself that he is the new Elijah. Well, Elijah, if you read about him in the Old Testament, what stands out about Elijah is not only did he lead a reform movement within Israel, but he was always doing miracles. God was doing miracle after miracle after miracle through Elijah. Well, the New Testament specifies that John did no sign. John did no miracle. How can he be the new Elijah when the old Elijah did all these miracles and he does none? Well, all the power of God that was shown in those miracles was all bound up in the preaching of this man. This man was a powerful preacher. And a lot of people would have thought he's the Messiah. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, it says that religious leaders come out there to ask him, why are you baptizing? Are you the Messiah? He says, no. He says, are you the, the prophet? No. They say, well, why are you baptizing? See, they understand what's going on. He's saying something. He's claiming something by being out there in the Jordan and baptizing people. He's claiming a new exodus. 
He's claiming these things. So, are you the Messiah? We know that John had uh, disciples. And in fact, when Jesus... Um, after Jesus will be baptized, he is going to also, he will be preaching. He's going to be preaching the same things as John the Baptist. And we will be told that Jesus' disciples will be baptizing out there in the region of the Jordan. And John's disciples will come to him and say, Master, the one, Jesus, he's baptizing. Now everybody's going to him. Everybody's going to him. And, and John says, he must increase, and I must decrease. John also says, he is the bridegroom. That's the language he uses. He's the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom's friend. My job is to bring the bride to him and to reveal him to the bride. That's my job. It's amazing to think, Jesus said that there was none greater of all the prophets and everybody in the Old Testament, there was none greater than John. Here's this man, all these promises, filled with the Holy Spirit from conception, and he's going to die at about age 30. His job's done. And he's fine with that. So this was an amazing man. So he comes to prepare a bride, and the way he does it is by preaching. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, it says. Now that is a quote from Isaiah chapter verse 3, which is part of another bittersweet prophecy like we saw last week. A mixture of great and glorious blessings and then of judgment. Isaiah 40 speaks of peace and comfort. It speaks of the glory of the Lord but it also speaks of flowers fading and grass withering when the breath of the Lord blows upon them. And the climax is verse 10. Behold, the Lord will come with a strong hand, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense are, is before him. So the picture is that God is coming near. It talks about preparing the way of the Lord. Take, take the hills and bring them low. And, and take the valleys and fill them up. And get all the curves and the kinks out. But one way or the Lord, the, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming to His temple. And when God comes to His temple, the, the light dispels the darkness. It dispels the darkness nationally. It dispels the darkness in every heart. And everything is revealed. And God comes to save. But those who do not respond in heart will be revealed for the heart that they uh, have. And so that necessarily means not only blessing, blessing to some, it also means judgment to others. And that is one of the themes of John the Baptist's preaching. He says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? There is judgment coming on Israel, and God sends two witnesses to testify against her for her unfaithfulness. He sends John the Baptist, and then he sends the final and ultimate witness, Jesus, the Son. And now these events are occurring about around 27 A.D. Now, barely 40 years later, now, if you're living 40 years, it, it can seem like a long time, but when you put it in the context of history, 40 years is not very long. And I can even tell you, when you get older, 
40 years won't seem like very long uh, to you either at that point looking back. So the, barely 40 years after this time, Jerusalem is going to be laid waste, completely and utterly destroyed. Hundreds and thousands of Jews are going to be massacred by the, the Romans. And so, um, but Jesus' disciples, as he takes great care to ensure, are going to be delivered from that judgment, that historical judgment. So there is a great winnowing, a great separating of wheat from chaff that's going to occur prior to that time, and it's beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist. As the light grows nearer and nearer and brighter and brighter, the differences, subtle differences, aren't subtle anymore. They become stark. And so this winnowing is going to intensify with the ministry of Jesus, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire and will leave no one untouched in Israel. Those who repent will be delivered, but those who do not will be brought under this severe historical judgment. Sometimes as Christians, we, we try to decide back and forth with different passages. Is this talking about the final judgment on the last day, or is it talking about a historical judgment? Well, what we have to understand is that all historical judgments are types or pictures of the great final judgment at the last day. And so it's not to deny the ultimate and final judgment when Jesus sits on the throne and, and, and judges in, on, the, on the last day. It's not to deny that, to talk about that there are precursors and types and foreshadows of that great and final judgment, which are historical judgments, like the one that would be brought on Jerusalem barely 40 years after this. It's interesting, John the Baptist uses the language of a, um, of a uh, harvest floor where wheat is brought, and they separate the wheat from the chaff, and they use a winnowing fan because wheat has substance, wheat has weight. Chaff has no weight, it has no substance. So you, you toss it up into the wind, and then the chaff blows away, and the wheat remains and is brought in, into the harvest. Now the really interesting thing is that wheat, um, is that th this is a, a judgment and this is a separating that always begins within God's own household. It begins with God's own people. Because the temple in the Old Testament was built at the site of a winnowing floor, of a Jebusite, Anua. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name. You remember the story in the Old Testament when David decides to take a census. And it says Satan moves him to take a census because God prohibited that. David wants to see how many soldiers and how much he has as the king. And that's not something God wants. And so God ends up sending a plague upon Israel. And it comes to the point where uh, the angel of death, uh, God tells him to stay his hand because God is moved with compassion. And that's what David said. He was given different options. And he said, let me fall into the hand of the Lord and not into the hand of man because God's merciful and man's not. And so it says the angel of death is standing by this threshing floor of this Jebusite. That's where the angel of death is. And God tells David to go there and to present sacrifices to him. 
So David goes and buys this parcel from the Jebusite. Jebusite offers to give it to him, but David says, no, I'm not going to give the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will pay you full price for it. He buys the threshing floor. He presents sacrifices and worship to the Lord there, and the plague stops. Now, later on, that's exactly the site of where the great temple that God leads Solomon to build will be built. And the picture is that God's temple, God's house, is a threshing floor. It is a place of separation. It's not like separation happens outside. Separation happens on this threshing floor. And so this is what is happening in Israel at this time. It's what continues to happen. Peter says the judgment always begins with the household of God. It always begins there. The separating always begins. Okay, Wheat and chaff are both part of wheat. It's not tares. It's, you know, Jesus uses the, the phrase separating sheep from goats. Well, sheep and goats are both clean sacrificial animals under the Old Testament. He's not talking about Gentiles from God's people, people outside of God's people from God's people. He's talking about within, within his own household, separating these things out, and then that grows outward. So the house of God is a threshing floor. It's a separating place. It's where death stops and life begins. And so all of this is, is in and behind everything that John is talking about. Now, John the Baptist's message can be summed up in this phrase, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God mean the same thing. Um, Matthew is writing his gospel early on to a largely Jewish Christian audience. And so using the word heaven instead of God was just a typically Jewish way of showing respect to God by not saying his name. So they would say kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. But the other gospels refer to the kingdom of God. John is announcing that the kingdom promised in Daniel is imminent. Now you, re you remember Daniel, the great kingdom that was promised there, was given in a vision. It was not given in a vision to Daniel, at least not initially. It was given in a vision to Nebuchadnezzar. Because the message of the kingdom of God is not just for God's people. It starts there, but then it goes out. In other words, from the very beginning, the whole way that God announces this kingdom makes it clear that this is not some private religious experience that you can have within yourself. It's something that covers the world. That's why God gives the vision to Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, Nebi, guess what's coming? I want you to know. I'm saying it in your language. Not in the language. It's not written in Hebrew. Daniel 2 through Daniel 7 is written in the language of the empire, not in Hebrew. And so this, he, he gives Nebuchadnezzar this vision of the, these four great empires of the ancient world. And in the midst of them, the fourth one, which is the Roman Empire, comes this stone which strikes the empire on the foot, but then the stone begins to grow, and it grows until it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And Daniel gives him the interpretation, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom in those days, and it will not have an end. And it will have the effect of putting the kingdom of man, the kingdom of fallen man, of bringing it to nothing. And it says that it's going to blow away in the wind. Well, what blows away in the wind? Chaff blows away in the wind. 
So Daniel was a very, very popular Old Testament book at this time because he gave specific promises about when these things are going to happen and the people could count. And they knew when you count up the time, it was right at that time. Right at the time that John the Baptist is coming out to preach and this time when Jesus comes into the world. So they are expecting all of these things. So that's what it means that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what then does it mean to repent? Since that's uh, the heart of John's message, to prepare the bride. Well, repent translates a Greek word that means to have a uh, reversal of mind or of purpose, a complete change, Not, not a little alteration, but a complete reversal of mind or purpose. So biblically, it means to have a reversal of mind and purpose toward God himself. A reversal of heart and mind and purpose that results in a change or a reversal of life. And repentance always goes along with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see John just doesn't uh, preach repentance just in the abstract. He also points people at the same time to Christ. Coming after me is one mightier than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandal. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. As he will say in John, after Jesus' baptism, John will begin to tell his disciples and point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So repentance and faith always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. In Acts 20, Paul talked about his ministry, his preaching ministry. And he said, look, this is what I've done. He knows that uh, he's going to be taken off to prison. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders for the last time. And he says, look, I have testified to Jews and to Gentiles. Notice, to Jews and to Gentiles, everybody Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them go together. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer is trying to get the Hebrews to get with it. And he says, look, we need to move on from the ABCs of Christ. We need to move on from the ABCs. And he talks about what the ABCs are. He says, the foundation is this, repentance from dead works and faith Toward God. So the picture that we get here is that works that are not the product of a living faith are dead. They're dead because they're not the result of a living relationship with God through Christ. For it says in 1 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So John speaks in our passage here of fruit worthy of repentance. And the word worthy, I mean, that's what it does mean. It's a word meaning worth, the worth of something, the value of something. So it's saying that this fruit has these actions, these decisions, these words, this manner of life has a value. And the value of it shows that it is the result of a genuine change of heart toward God. So the idea is that of actions and words and choices that show from their quality that they're the product of a genuine heart for God. And then John calls them in verse 10, good fruit. So good fruit 
is fruit that shows by its value, its quality, that it is the product of a genuine heart for God. And so we see that it's not just faith that produces fruit. There's also repentance that produces fruit. Again, they're two sides of the same coin. And that fruit is going to display a genuine heart for God. Now, it's important for us to notice that John, by bringing up good fruit and fruit worthy of repentance, is not advocating hyper-introspection here. Constant navel-gazing is not the fruit of repentance. Why? Well, repentance always lifts us toward God, which means it lifts us out of ourselves. The Bible says in Lamentations 3:40, let us search and try our ways. And what is the result of biblical searching and trying our ways? And turn again to the Lord. So where does biblical searching and trying our ways, biblical repentance lead us? Out of ourselves and toward God. So biblical searching and trying our ways is not self-centered because the point is not self. Constant navel-gazing is self-centered because self is the point. Biblical searching and trying our ways identifies self as the problem. It finds the manifestations of self and turns away from self to God. Navel-gazing starts with self and stays with self while talking a lot about God in order to justify it. Okay, you see the difference? Um, as we search and try our ways biblically, what is the problem? We're, we're turning from something and we're turning to something as a result of this process. We identify really self as being the problem. So we turn out of self and we turn toward God. That is the result of it. It speaks in 2 Corinthians, Paul does, of godly sorrow and the sorrow that is from the world. He says, Godly sorrow produces repentance which leads to salvation, which has no regrets. So, fruit in keeping with repentance, a demeanor of repentance, is not a long face. The demeanor of repentance is a joyful face because it has no regrets because it turns to God. It believes His word and it... Um, receives his forgiveness. The sorrow of the world leads to death because it just spins in circles. It just stays down in the basement. It doesn't leave the basement. And if you stay down in your basement, it's dark. It's dark down there. God doesn't want you to stay down there. So, John here is not talking about that. He's not talking about hyper-introspection. Indeed, He's talking about something else. He's suspicious of the Sadducees and Pharisees, it says, because they have agendas that are very well known. And their agendas call into question their true motives for coming out to his baptism to start with. In fact, we're told by another gospel that they're coming out there again. They're asking him all these questions. Are you the Messiah? So what are you saying? Do you fit with our agenda? Are you copacetic with our agenda? Do you dovetail with our agenda? Because if he, if he doesn't, and if Jesus doesn't, there's going to be problems. And guess what? Those problems end up leading to his crucifixion. 
So their motives are called into question because both groups are known for duplicity. Both groups are known for ulterior motives. The Sadducees are really, I mean, you would really say they're not even believers. They don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They're in with Rome. They're politicians. They want to keep what they have. So you could see for them to really come to a baptism of repentance and turn toward God, they got to leave their agenda. Pharisees is a little bit more subtle, but it's the same kind of thing because the Pharisees, as Jesus tells us, he says they're hypocrites. They say a lot of true things about God's word, but they end up hyping God's word in a way they add to God's word because they're going to they're like we're going to be the Marine Corps of believers by adding all this extra stuff that we do. And Jesus says, you know, this is really not super spirituality. This is stinking hypocrisy. Because you set aside God's word. You don't just, you're not just building on top of it. Anything, anything you add to God's word in either direction, if you take away, if you add to it, something the Old Testament says not to do, either way, you are getting away from God's word. Okay? And that's what he said the Pharisees do. You set aside God's word for all of these traditions you've come up with. So again, the Pharisees are somewhat, and even though they seem they are within what we would call the evangelical ambit, because they do believe in the resurrection for the dead, um, they are still have an agenda that is not God's agenda. It's not leading them toward God. It's leading them away. It's leading the people away. And they're going to have to abandon it if they're going to really repent and be a people who are prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, uh, John challenges them. He says, bring forth fruit that shows in its value, in its quality, that you have a genuine heart for God. And he specifically challenges them regarding one particular impediment to faith and repentance and heart for God, and that is trusting in something other than Christ. And the particular thing that they were trusting in is their status within the covenant. Their status as being blood descendants of Abraham. Their status as being members of the people of God, which they were. But John is saying to them, you can't trust in that. It is Christ who gives you your covenant status. You can't trust in the result. You trust in the one who brings you into that covenant status. You don't trust in the covenant status. You, pr you trust in Christ who makes you part of the, God, of the people of God. You trust in Christ who gives you adoption into God's family. And so he says to them, don't say to yourself, I know what you're saying to yourself. You're saying, we have Abraham as our father. He says, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. The point is that, as Paul will say in Galatians, ultimately Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham. And Paul says, he gets to the, to the ending point of one of his arguments in Galatians, and he sums it up this way, Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Notice the order. He does not say, if you are Abraham's seed, then you are Christ. He says, if you are Christ, then and then only are you Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. 
This is the same kind of point that John the Baptist is making with these Pharisees. He says, you're only Abraham's seeds. You're only Abraham's heirs if you believe in Christ. And your trust is to be in the one who gives you all that, not in the stuff that he gives you. And so we can see that if we cannot trust in covenant status, we cannot trust in our membership in God's household, if you can't trust in something so spiritual sounding as that, such a great blessing from God as that, that it ought to be clear that there is nothing in this world that we can trust in other than Christ. It is Christ alone who brings us adoption and all these other blessings. There's something else that we should notice about, well, let me, let me say this before I move on, because I want to make sure there's not misunderstandings on this. John is not saying, and I am not saying, that we have no assurance of salvation. John is not interjecting doubt in order to try to control presumption. Okay, It never works. And the church has a long history of trying to use doubt in order to control presumption. Presumption is what these Pharisees and Sadducees were guilty of by saying, we have, you know, Abraham was our uh, ancestor, we're in. We have this freestanding relationship with God. We don't need Jesus. They're offended, the idea that I have to believe in Jesus. Do you know who I am? The son of Abraham. No, that's not the way it works. But John is not interjecting doubt to control presumption because the Bible is full of assurances to you as God's children. Again and again and again, the Bible assures you. You know, you think of Paul's great chapter in Romans 8 where he says, you know, it's God who's done all these things. It's God who's brought all this to pass in your life. And there's nothing who can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's what Paul says. It's not up to you. It's not up to everybody else. It is up to God. God's the one who did this from start to finish. And there is no one uh, greater. So he's not saying that you don't have assurance. He's talking about where real assurance is located. Real assurance is located and fixed on Christ himself and not on any of the gifts or the blessings that he brings with him, right? We enjoy all the gifts and blessings, but our love and our loyalty and our faith is in the one who brings them, not in the gifts themselves. So moving on then, I want us to notice something else about repentance in this passage, and this leads us to our application, and that is this. Repentance is for believers also. Repentance is for believers too. John's audience is Israelites and Gentile God-fearers. That is, Gentiles who haven't been circumcised, but they believe in the God of Israel, and so they come to the synagogues, they, they worship God, they hear the word of God, and they order their lives in that way. That's who he is preaching to. And so... You do have some Sadducees and Pharisees and those types showing up, but a lot of the people who are out there listening to John, receiving his baptism, 
confessing their sins are people like Mary and Joseph. They're people like Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's own parents. In other words, there's a lot of people there who don't need to be converted. They're believers. They're godly people. Nor is there a bunch of sin, crass sin and so forth in their lives that they've been hiding that they need to confess. That's not the case. These are believers and they're godly people. So what is going on when they are out there listening to this message of faith and repentance and so forth? Well, again, it is something for God's people as well as unbelievers. When the message of faith and repentance comes to unbelievers and God quickens their heart, then you have conversion. So conversion is what results initially, but faith and repentance don't stop at that point. They begin at one point in time, but they don't end at one point in time. They go forward and they continue through the life of God's people. Repentance, like faith, I mean, does our faith stop? The moment of conversion, that's where it starts. That's not where it stops. It goes on. Repentance is the same way. It's a lifelong orientation or cast of heart. It's a demeanor. Again, it's not a long face. It's a, it's a demeanor of heart. It's an orientation of love and loyalty and obedience to God. And part of that means having this heart that as God puts his finger on different things, as we grow in Christ, he will put his fingers on different things. And as he does, we don't harden ourselves. We don't turn away from him. We respond to him. We see God is calling to me to be more faithful in this area, to love him more perfectly in this area, to love somebody else better in this area. We respond. We turn to him and we grow in Christ uh, likeness. You know, and it, it, as we grow, children, as you grow in faith, the things that God will be putting his fingers on with you will be more and more subtle things, but they will be important things. When I first became a Christian at 17, I was just trying to stop cussing. I just thought if I could stop cussing, and I didn't think I was going to be able to. I knew God, you know, that's how basic it was at that time. I'm just trying to shut my foul mouth up. Uh, and I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. I remember praying. It's like, God, it's just, I can't, you know. And then if I'm, even if I'm not saying it out loud, I'm saying it in here. And I remember that somehow God kind of took that out of my consciousness for a while. It was about a year later. And then suddenly I realized one day, it's like, I'm not cussing anymore. But again, I'm not rummaging around in my basement all this time. God is working with me, and he brings me uh, to uh, uh, you know, a, um, a higher point, a closer uh, walk with him. As you go on in the Christian faith, the things that God puts his finger on in my life nowadays can be much more subtle things. It's usually it's somehow a failure to love God as I should. It's a failure to love somebody else as I should. It's, it's some form of self-centeredness. It's some form of pride. And I'll tell you, this stuff, this stuff is so nasty that I wish that I could stop cussing again. I mean, that would be a lot easier than the kind of thing that God comes to put his finger on as you grow in Christ. And so we want to have this 
heart and this demeanor, a heart to God as his children as we walk with him. And that's, that's what it's all about. So what are the fruit that we should look for and pray for in ourselves as God's people, as believers, as his children? Well, the, the Bible points us in some different directions, but I want to urge that they all have a common element. And that element is the element of identification, of identifying ourselves with somebody who is outside of ourselves, beginning with God in Christ, an identification uh, with God in Christ, an identification with His people as a whole, and an identification with one another as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3 when people ask him, what does fruit worthy of repentance look like? says, the people asked him, saying, what shall we do? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came. So these are Jews who are working for the Romans, collecting taxes. And a lot of times uh, they collected more than what Rome was owed, and they keep the difference. Okay, So it's kind of like working for the IRS on commission. And whatever you get above what goes to Washington, D.C., you get to keep. So the tax collectors who, who are, are, are coming to repentance are saying to John, what shall we do? He says, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, soldiers, here's Roman centurions coming, saying, what shall we do? Now notice Jesus is, or John is not saying to these tax collectors, he's not saying, quit your job. He doesn't say to the Roman centurions, quit your job. He doesn't say you can't be that. What he says to the centurions is, he says, don't intimidate anyone. Don't use your official status and your spear and your sword and all the soldiers you got with you. Don't intimidate anyone. Don't accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, notice in each of these the principle of identification. The principle of each one of these groups, as they're dealing with others within this broad covenant community, as they're dealing with others, the principle of them placing themselves in the shoes of the other person. Well, I hope you can see that the principle of identification is exactly what the golden rule is expressing. Do to others what you would have them to do for you. That's the principle of identification. And the golden rule basically is an amplification or a paraphrase of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, identification with the other person. So they're based on a principle of identification as opposed to disassociation, of empathy as opposed to rivalry. And this gets right down to the personal level. Now, remember that the the first identification we make is between us and Christ. In other words, us and God through Christ. That's our first identification. Because since the fall, one of the things that the Bible makes clear is that identifying with other people is not something that we do left to ourselves. It's not something we do naturally. It is the most difficult thing. We're in it for ourselves. And it left to ourselves, even the nice things we do is really for us. So everybody can see what a jolly good fellow I am. Um, and so it, it, it's only the power of God in Christ 
that can make us apply this principle. It is only when we lose our self-identity as our primary defining identity and we find our primary defining identity in Christ that we can begin to do this. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, I'm not, this is not talking about we all become little blobs. And uh, as I heard one uh, a political speaker say within the last year that his vision of a perfect society is where um, you could put uh, like uh, balls in a hopper, you know, like they do for the, what's the thing where they give, what is it, the lottery. You know, they put all the balls. So there's a ball in this big hopper for every person on the face of the earth, okay? Lots of balls in there. Everybody's got a number. He said, you would, be really, you would be willing to reach in there and pull out anybody's number and switch places with them. But what's the principle? He says, because there's been such a leveling effect that there's no difference. Nobody has any identity anymore. Now, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about losing our defining identity in ourself and finding it in Christ. We keep who we are. In fact, you really become who you are. You really become who God made you to be when you lose self as your defining identity. When you find Christ as your defining identity, you will become really more and more individual, but in a beautiful way that enables you to identify with other people. So, the identification principle starts with Christ. The second place it goes is to God's people as a whole. God's people as a whole. All the believers, all the Christians on the face of the earth. Not just the people in our church, not just the people in our denomination, not just Protestants. All on the face of the earth, an identification with God's people. We see that uh, in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer for the people of God where he confesses all sorts of sins of which he is not himself guilty. In fact, a lot of these sins were committed before he's born. He's confessing. He, he wraps himself in the whole people of God and goes to God and confesses the sins of the whole people of God, past and present, putting himself right in the middle of it and asking God to turn, to change the hearts, and to bless his people again. So that's the next thing we see. If we truly have identified with Christ and taken him as our fundamental identity, we will immediately then begin to identify with God's people. We see this with the Apostle John and the Apostles and so forth. They talk about, do you want to know if you love Christ? Well, do you love his people? You know, it's like, well, no, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about loving Jesus. I'm not talking about loving a bunch of sinners. You know, now he says, well, this is how you know if you love Jesus, because you're not really talking about loving Jesus over here or loving these sinful Christians over here. You're talking about loving the Jesus that we can't see as opposed to loving the Jesus that we can see. Now, the hard part is the Jesus that we can see are a bunch of people who have warts and they have problems. But if we truly love Christ and take him this identification principle, we will begin to identify with his people as a whole. 
The next thing that will happen, though, is it'll come down to the level where John the Baptist is talking about in Luke 3. And that is the very personal level with one another. We will start to identify with one another. And we will begin to pray and to hope for one another in a different way. There's a way of praying for people. There's a way of praying for the people of God as a whole. And there's a way of praying for one another as individuals which had the effect of disassociating ourselves from the people of God or from one another. Those prayers are basically complaints. Daniel was not a complainer. He was a prayer who identified with God's people and with others. We can pray for God's people. We can pray for one another in a way that actually will result in more distance that we feel between ourselves and the one or the ones that we're praying for. There's another way to pray for God's people and one another where we identify with the person, identify with the people that makes us love them more, not less. So Daniel's prayers make him love God's people more, not less. And that's also true on the personal level. And this is why you see, you see it with Jesus. You see it with Paul in Ephesians, his great manifesto in the church. You see it with John in 1 John. You see this focus on this particular heart out of identification within the body of Christ with one another. A simple word for it is love. Because it's the precondition of everything else. It's the precondition of faith, repentance, spilling over from God's people to the world. And that's always the way it happens. If there's one thing this world needs, it's faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance toward God. But you know, if God is merciful enough to grant us a huge mass conversion of people, of people in our country, of people all over the world. You know where it's going to start? You know where that heart of faith and repentance is going to start? Right here. And it doesn't mean we're going to become converted. You are converted. You have faith. You have repentance. But the principle of identification, the principle of love, there's going to be a renewal. There's going to be a renewal a new turning to God, a new identification with God and one another that will take place. That becomes the engine of it spilling over, flowing over, out and across the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.